The views and opinions expressed during Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye on the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Aaron Kling. Tonight we've got Cops and Comedy, with a side order of stories from North Carolina News Service. To start us off, I interviewed Major David Kelly, the field operations commander of the North Carolina University State Police, on his department's take on maintaining transparency and public safety within the NC State campus and the Raleigh area. Afterwards, we have Mike Clifford with the North Carolina News Service discussing the passing of Baltimore Representative Elijah Cummings, the departure of Rick Perry as Energy Secretary. Then, Nadia Romlegan will discuss grassroots attempts to monitor local air quality and the health effects of human exposure to coal ash. Finally, to wrap up tonight's show, contributor Benjamin Denton has interviewed Zach Van Waltzen of the director of the CIA. No, not that CIA. I mean the comedic improvisational alliance here at North Carolina State. I and the Triangle has all bases loaded, folks. Let's knock this one out of the park. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC 88.1, I and the Triangle, and I'm here with Major David Kelly, the field operations commander of the North Carolina University State Police. Hello, Major. Good afternoon. How are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So let's go over your profession. What is your profession? Plenty of folks have an idea of what an officer is responsible for, but what are the duties of a field operations commander? Uh, Currently, I oversee the investigations division and the patrol division for the University Police Department. My counterpart, Major Ian Kendrick, is the supervisor over support services. Okay, excellent. And how did you get your position? Uh, So the patrol division is made up of four different patrol squads. They're the officers that you normally see out and about riding around in the marked patrol cars, responding to calls for service calls for assistance. The Investigations Division is a specialized unit that oversees more complex criminal cases that may come in, whether it's a fraud or financial crimes case, detailed breaking and entering cases that may occur. Those are normally tasked with the Investigations Division. Two weeks ago, your department reported that they were fulfilling mandated standards of policy and procedures, administration, operations, support services. Could you go into detail? So I started with NC State University Police about 10 years ago, September of 2009. Started my law enforcement career with the Goldsboro Police Department uh, back in 1991. Uh, while there, I uh, was there for about 16 years. I worked my way up through the ranks and was actually a supervisor over the investigation divisions for Goldsboro PD when I left to take a job as a contractor with the U.S. State Department and served three tours in the police reform program in Afghanistan. Uh, upon my return, I got hired on with NC State. I started off as a master officer in the patrol division, I was promoted to lieutenant over operations, and six years ago, I was promoted to major of field operations. Two weeks ago, your department reported that they were fulfilling mandated standards of policy and procedures, administration, operations, support services. Could you go into detail on what these services are? Yes, sir. So our university police department is a fully sworn law enforcement agency 
with this primary jurisdiction of North Carolina State University's campus. We also have expanded jurisdiction within the city of Raleigh as well. Being a sworn law enforcement agency, we're actually a duly accredited law enforcement agency. First is through an organization called CALEA, which is the Commission on the Accreditation of Law Enforcement Agencies, and also IACALEA, which is the International Association of Campus Law Enforcement Administrators. Most any municipal police department can achieve a CALEA accreditation. For universities such as ourselves and others that are within the system and throughout the U.S., you also have the ability to achieve a secondary accreditation through IACALEA, which is geared more specifically towards the standards that are set forth for campus law enforcement agencies. So CALEA and their accrediting body provide us what are called standards or best practices, which are derived from uh, national organizations such as the International Association of Chief of Police, college administrators, campus administrators, and so forth. And through those standards, that's what drives the development of our policies and procedures, our daily operation schedules, how we handle internal affairs and citizen complaint investigations, all the way down to how we're supposed to write reports so that we're capturing all the information that's needed uh, correctly and accurately. And these individual components, could you break them down for us? So certainly there's several components that are in there, everything from policy development to where we have like our basic general orders, how we're supposed to conduct ourselves, our dress, our appearance, not only how we conduct ourselves as police officers, but in our personal lives. Then it goes down into a section called administration. Those policies are geared towards our promotion process, career advancement, operation of department vehicles. Then we have a whole other section that deals with the investigative process. Uh, How are we uh, responding to calls for service? How do we investigate those calls for service? What reporting mechanisms are in place? How we utilize everything from social media to intelligence-led policing? All those are set forth in those type of standards. We also have a set of standards that are geared towards our emergency communication center. We actually have a 911 center here on campus with our police department. They can receive 911 calls uh, as well as non-emergency calls through their through their regular line. They're the ones that receive the information dispatched to our officers. So there are standards of how they're supposed to operate in the emergency communication center, dispatch calls, track calls, and place them into our computer-aided dispatch system. The standards also talk about how we respond to critical incidents, whether it be an active shooter on campus, whether there's a bomb threat, barricaded individual, some sort of other type of emergency disaster or, or natural disaster that occurs. We have actual policies that, that we work on in order to, to make sure that our officers are responding the way that they're supposed to based on the best national standards. Excellent. And how do you engage with the public? You mentioned social media, of course, and transparency can be sometimes difficult and important for police departments anywhere. How do you handle that? So, you know, all of our officers, we truly have adopted the community policing philosophy. And so all of our officers have received lots of training in how to interact with the public, how to start conversations, to, to really try to bridge that gap between law enforcement and the community. We do have a crime prevention unit. and In that unit, those officers are tasked with everything from designing safety programming for the campus community, such as an active shooter uh, safety programming, uh, RAD, which is rape aggression defensive tactics training, personal safety defense training. We can also tailor certain type of training to certain groups. Uh, We work with housing and with the RAs on developing alcohol awareness programs for the students that are in the dorms. And so that is one step that we work with uh, crime prevention in order to reach out to the public. We do have a social media presence. We do have a Facebook account and a Twitter account, and we try to push out as much information as we can through those social media platforms as well. A lot of our information can be found on our homepage, 
for the University Police Department. We also do a lot of outreach programs between not only our, our officers and crime prevention units, but also with our special units, such as our traffic safety unit. Uh, we have a police canine unit as well as a mounted patrol unit. And so these are all assets that we can use to try to, to reach out to the public in an environment to where it's not. It's a friendly, open environment to where people feel that they can come up to us and talk to us and stuff like that. We've also started other initiatives such as Coffee with a Cop. So Coffee with a Cop, each semester we have a program. It's a national program called Coffee with a Cop. And several of our officers, uh, as well as myself and other members of the command staff, will actually go to you know some of the local coffee places here on campus. Normally it's through Port City, Java. Uh, we just recently held a session not only at Tally Student Union, but also at College of Veterinary Medicine uh, out at the uh, CVM campus. And, and we're out there for a couple of hours, and we're there to, to have people come up, talk to us, engage in conversation. Uh, we talk about our department. We talk about the things that we do. And during that, you get a free cup of coffee. You know, so who, who doesn't like free? So what have you actually encountered there as far as the public goes? Any stories? Certainly. So we have a lot of people that come up to us and, and you know, they're very thankful and, and happy to see us that we're out and about engaging with the public. You know, this is a conversation where some people have asked questions about our wolf alert system or they've asked questions about how is the how is crime on campus or what safety steps, you know, should they take in particular situations? You know, that there's really a, a broad range of topics that, that people have come up and wanted to engage us in and speak to us about. Speaking of which, how do you recommend remaining safe on campus? You know, there's a lot of different things and a lot of messages that we use to try to put that particular safety message out. The first thing is you're responsible for your own safety. And, and through that is, is, an, is an awareness level that you need to have. Each time that we send out some type of a crime warning or wolf alert messages, there's always a, a several safety tips that are placed into those messages. Yes. And those are there for, for a very particular reason. We understand that we have students that are, you know, walking from one building to another at night. We suggest that when you do that, that you don't have your headphones in, you know, because when you have your headphones in, you can't hear and pay attention to your surroundings, completely unaware. And so we really stress that you need to have a, have an awareness level during the day and during the night when you're traveling, you know, throughout campus itself. Simple things such as making sure that, you know, if you have a car on campus, keep the car a lot, take all your valuables and place them out of view. Even down to your dorm room, a lot of times students become complacent. They're familiar you know, with a lot of their friends and people that are on their floor or in the building. So a lot of times they'll leave their, their door to their room, their dorm room unlocked. And so we, we stress these things to make sure that, you know, always be aware, be vigilant to some extent. Don't become distracted into the daily routines that can happen. Because when you're not paying attention, something might occur. Exactly right. Now, you mentioned trying to close the gap between the public and the police force. What is that gap? Can you describe it? I think that when we do a review of how we've interacted with the public, and we've sent out everything from uh, campus security and safety surveys. And I assume this is an issue that every department across the country has to deal with. A absolutely. I think that you know over the last several years, we've certainly seen uh, a national decline in the relationships between law enforcement agencies and the public. You know, we, we're fully aware of that, and we're trying to, to come up with any idea possible that we can bridge that gap. We're here. We're a resource. We're always going to be made our, make ourselves available to you and to assist you with whatever issue or problem or complaint that you may have. And the question is, how do we get that information out to the public? What programming can we use to, to let our campus community know that we're here? And so not only through our presence on social media, through our crime prevention department, 
every encounter that our officers have with, with somebody on campus, we want it to be a positive encounter. We want it to be an educational encounter. We understand that sometimes people do make mistakes. We understand that sometimes, you know, we may have to act in an enforcement capacity, but our goal is always to have some type of a educational component behind what we do. And so through some of these initiatives that I've already talked about, you know, that's just the first step. And we're always open to any suggestions anybody has from our campus community of how we can, you know, continue to engage and make our relationship better. You've mentioned the practical solutions to this, how you're trying to overcome this gap. But do you have any kind of thoughts on the mechanics of the gap itself as far as how the public would drift away from officers, why there would be that kind of divide? You know, when you look at the sociological aspect of it, people can form their own opinions based on their own personal experiences. And when they don't have that personal experience to draw from, they normally draw from other sources, whether it's an experience a friend had with a law enforcement officer that's been relayed to them, uh, information that's seen on the news media that they see, uh, you know, a certain way or, or where interaction occurred. And now they have this vision. Of that's how all police officers are. I mean, so there's that whole dynamics that is very difficult for us as, as a law enforcement agency to figure out how can we change that narrative or how can we, you know, switch that perception to where that's not necessarily our department and that's not how we operate. And that's probably one of the most difficult things many law enforcement agencies have these days is, is to, to switch that narrative and change that perspective. And it's through law enforcement agencies taking that initiative to get out, interact with people, speak with people, find out what their concerns are, find out what their complaints are, and actually put something in place to try to address those. And, and that's been the method and the model that we've been using. I can honestly say that I think that even through our satisfaction survey, Uh, we have a very good relationship with our campus community. Certainly, there are times where somebody may not have liked the way that we did an enforcement action, um, but again, we're still a law enforcement agency, and we still need to go through through that criminal process. You know, so we've tried to do things to make sure that if something happens, we're going to talk about it. We're going to explain it. We're going to provide our point of view. We're going to try to provide information to provide some level of education as to why this situation ended the way that it did. And transparency is, is the key here. We need to be transparent in all of the actions that we do, the decisions that we make, and what our officers are doing. And that ties back into our accreditation. From being accredited with, with CALEA and iCALEA, it requires us to be transparent. And we want to be transparent. And we want to be able to provide whatever information we can when we can. So there is a top-down push for transparency. Absolutely. You also mentioned the media. How do you, you as an organization operate within the shadow of the larger media in the nation? Uh, certainly. So uh, one, one of the roles that I serve in is, is uh, as public information officer for the University Police Department. And so a lot of the information that is distributed out to the media comes through, through me. And I you know, compile the information and send it out to the media areas. And whenever there's a request from a uh, local media source, a national source, that information is sent to me as well. So we, you know, we, we certainly see the uh, media as an ally to our department. The most difficult thing for us to manage is when we're just involved in a situation or an incident and we have not gotten the full picture of what has occurred where we can send this information to the media. When you're on the ground, the scope would be very much narrowed, I understand. I exactly understand. right. And so next thing you know is that somebody has taken over social media on a complete different track of what this incident happened. And so we end up having to play catch up to 
how fast social media is driving the story. If something's to happen on campus while we're still investigating, I, I guarantee you information's already out on Facebook and, and Instagram and Twitter about what's going on. Exactly right. And so a lot of times misinformation is being sent out until we've had an opportunity to actually assess the situation and provide, you know, exactly what happened through that narrative, we're, we're already playing catch up at that point. And so it's important for us as a police department to have a good relationship with our local media outlets and stuff, because we recognize that through these media outlets, they'll help us to disseminate the right message out to the campus community and the surrounding community as well. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we close? No, I, I thank you for the opportunity. Uh, this is certainly one of those other outlets that we see as a as a benefit to not only our department, but to our Wolfpack community. To let everybody know that your university police department is here for you. Don't hesitate to contact us. Let us know what's going on. Let us know what your concerns are. And if there's anything that we can do to help you along your process while you're here at NC State, just let us know. I'm Aaron Kling with the WKNC 88.1 I in the Triangle, and I'm signing off. The Public News Service Daily Newscast, I'm Mike Clifford. As the nation grieves the sudden passing of Maryland's Democratic Congressman Elijah Cummings, activists in his Baltimore district remember him for his passionate support for local issues. In a city with high poverty and transportation troubles, Cummings has been a tireless advocate of improving the commute, especially for low-income residents, says Brian O'Malley with the Central Maryland Transportation Alliance. O'Malley worked with Cummings on many projects, including establishing a train line that connects Baltimore with Washington. One thing he said that really stuck with me, which is he said why this matters is this isn't just running a train up and down the tracks. This brings life to life. O'Malley also said during his 11 years working with Cummings, the congressman had a way of making people feel important, even on the most mundane projects. West Baltimore erupted into protests after 25-year-old Freddie Gray died in police custody. During the riots that followed Gray's death, Matthew Hubbard, community activist and owner of a West Baltimore barbershop, says Cummings helped restore order and assured people that the authorities were taking the case seriously. He walked the neighborhood. They changed the mindset in this area. After that, now black men start stepping up and try to change the inner city. Throughout the day Thursday, Hubbard says his customers remembered Cummings and all he did for the city. I'm Diane Bernard reporting. Energy Secretary Rick Perry is stepping down. The New York Times reports Perry has drawn scrutiny for his role in the controversy surrounding President Trump's efforts to push Ukraine officials to investigate the son of a political rival. He told the president Thursday he would resign from the cabinet. As you may know, the EPA wants to roll back regulations for controlling methane emissions from the oil and gas industry, but clean air advocates say that's going in the wrong direction. On Thursday, in Dallas, Texas, the EPA held its only hearing on a proposal to loosen regulations designed to curb emissions of the potent greenhouse gas. Pennsylvania is the second largest producer of methane in the country, Patrice Tomchek with Moms Clean Air Force says methane is responsible for 25% of the climate change already taking place around the world and in the Commonwealth. Families are experiencing increasing flooding and droughts, 
and the air is degrading also because of this. The Trump administration says rolling back methane emission regulations will save the oil and gas industry millions of dollars a year in compliance costs. The EPA takes public comments until November 25th. I'm Andrea Sears reporting. This is PMS. The state of Massachusetts is home to the man who leads the Voter Protection Corps. It's a new national nonprofit that launched to address voting difficulties ahead of the 2020 election. Since 2020 could be even more volatile than past elections, the group has assembled a team of voter protection experts, with some members of Congress as advisors. Quentin Palfrey chairs the Voter Protection Corps after serving in a similar role in Ohio for Barack Obama's 2008 campaign. Palfrey explains why the organization is launching now, before many nominees have even been chosen. A lot of the challenges that voters face, whether that's poor ballot design or long lines or old-fashioned voter suppression, a lot of the factors that go into that happen well in advance of the election. While the core is nonpartisan, Palfrey acknowledges that the team has largely worked for Democrats. Most recently, he was the 2018 Democratic nominee in the Massachusetts lieutenant governor race. I'm Laura Rossbrow-Tellum reporting. This story was produced in collaboration with the Fulcrum. More information is online at voterprotection.org. And the acting director of the Bureau of Land Management has advocated for selling off public lands, and conservation groups say that's reason enough he needs to step down. William Perry Penley was a controversial choice when named to the post. At a recent conference, Penley told the crowd the BLM's mission is to drill for oil, mine coal, cut trees, and allow ranchers to graze cattle. He didn't mention historic uses of public land, such as recreation and conservation. Jesse Dubell with the New Mexico Wildlife Federation calls Penley an example of a fox guarding the hen house. With the agenda of the current administration and with the agenda of Penley at the BLM, it's inevitable that the end game here is to try to dispose of those lands, transfer them to the state so they can be sold off. Twelve U.S. senators asked Interior Secretary David Bernhardt in late September to dismiss Penley from the job. I'm Roz Brown. Finally, about a dozen Ohio TV stations changing their tune today, so to speak. The FCC halfway through a national consolidation of TV frequencies. The move is to gain more broadcast airwave space for high-speed wireless service. Gene Kiddo with the FCC explains the number of people using antennas is actually growing. That is, viewers cut the cord from cable and satellite services. They still want and need local news and weather alerts and other emergency alerts that their broadcast stations provide. And so they are turning to antennas for that. About 15% to probably 25%, depending on the market, are actually using antennas for either some or all of their TVs. According to the Nielsen Rating Service, 16.4 million U.S. households have an over-the-air digital antenna in 2018, paired to about 12 million back in 2014. I'm Mike Clifford from Public News Service. We are member and listener supported and we're online at publicnewsservice.org. After spending decades treating people with severe asthma, a retired emergency room physician is calling for local air quality monitors in every North Carolina county. Dr. Robert Parr, along with the nonprofit organization Clean Air Carolina, helped install stationary air quality monitors in New Hanover County. After looking through the medical research, I realized that I was treating these people on a temporary basis because oftentimes I was discharging them into an environment with dirty air. 
and that dirty air was actually the cause of why they came into the emergency room in the first place. Poor air quality is linked to respiratory and heart complications. And according to the World Health Organization, air pollution is responsible for millions of premature deaths globally. Right now, there are monitors in 86 counties. Calvin Cupini of Clean Air Carolina says his group is working with people to acquire and install air sensors in communities in all of the state's 100 counties. He adds North Carolina would be among the first to undertake a citizen science project of this size. We'd be in direct competition with California. It would really say something for North Carolina to have a project like this with so many different partners. Parr says the local sensors allow residents to check their air quality in real time. Air-sensitive individuals can gauge whether or not it's okay to mow the lawn, go for a run, or be outside for long periods of time. So I was treating patients with prednisone, inhalers, sometimes the antibiotics if their asthmatic symptoms led to a bacterial infection, where if they actually knew the quality of their air that they were breathing on a daily basis, then they might be able to avoid that air. Parr also points out that people living near industrial areas are more prone to developing health problems from breathing polluted air. During a public hearing on the EPA's proposed loosening of coal ash disposal regulations, Mooresville resident Susan Wind told agency officials that she believed exposure to coal ash, which is widely used as structural fill in the area, likely played a role in her daughter's thyroid cancer. Lisa Sorg is an investigative reporter for NC Policy Watch, who initially found state data documenting a higher-than-normal amount of thyroid cancer cases among young women in Mooresville, specifically in areas near Lake Norman. She says the cancer is mainly seen in women in their 40s and 50s. It's very uh, uncommon to see it in teenage girls, and that is who was developing it in Mooresville in two zip codes, 28115 and 28117. Earlier this year, Republican State Senator Vicki Sawyer of Mooresville introduced Senate Bill 328, which would prevent coal ash from being used for structural fill without a permit from the State Department of Environmental Quality. Sorg points out that while there's been no scientific link between coal ash and the increase in thyroid cancer cases, a large coal ash site from a Duke Energy power plant is located on Lake Norman. Coal ash was used a lot as structural fill. And what that means is coal ash was used to maybe fill in parking lots or to amend soil. And that was used a lot in that area because there's a lot of coal ash. But the studies that have been ongoing are trying to find out if there could be other factors as well. They've been testing household dust and drinking water and and things like that. So we don't know. Sorg says it's important for community members to get involved if they suspect environmental toxins might be causing health problems in their area. Bring it to the local health board, bring it to the state's attention and bring it to the media's attention because sometimes these things do not get the attention they need. Researchers at Duke University have released early results from a study showing some connection between radon gas levels and radioactivity in soil, which could be the result of coal ash to the thyroid cancer cases. For North Carolina News Service, I'm Nadia Ramlagan. I'm here with Jack Van Waltzen. Uh, this is Benjamin Denton for Eye on the Triangle, or this segment we're spotlighting different student organizations, and Jack is the director of the CIA, as in the Comedic Improvisational Alliance, the improv troupe here on campus. Jack, how's it going? It's going well. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. 
for people that are listening, and when I say improv, and if they don't know what that is, what is improv? Improv, uh, at least the way we do it, is a, a form of comedy. It's a form of comedy theater where everything that happens is uh, made up on the spot. So it's, if you think of a stand-up, everything before is, is pre-planned, but with improv comedy, when they're, the people are up there and making the jokes, it's all off the top of their head. Yeah, and so stand-up is one person. Is improv usually a team thing? Improv usually has at least four people up there at a time uh, so they can support each other. It's not just one person uh, coming up with stuff. Okay, and so how long has the club been around? The club has been around for a while. It died out for a little while and then came back in around 2006, and since then it's been pretty alive and well. So it's been about 13 years since it came back. So what do you guys, what do, you guys do? What's a typical meeting look like? So uh, for meeting, it's pretty much practicing all of improv-type stuff. So we get everyone together, and we have our practice leaders, and, and they get up there and uh, sort of introduce improv and do some opener-type stuff to get people warmed up. And then we lead it into some games on some days and sometimes just some more uh, free-form performance stuff. And uh, anyone who comes in uh, can, can try the new things. The, the practice leaders are sure to explain it, and then um, people just go up, try it out for themselves. If it goes well, that's great. If not, it's fine. Everyone every week works to get better, and it's pretty much just a, an environment for people to come and try to do this new thing, this improv comedy, and have fun. Well, you said that improv has come up on the spot, and yet you mentioned practice. Jack, what what are you practicing if you're coming up with it on the spot? Well, it's less of planning. It's more of like a, a practice as in you need to be able to think on your feet. So if, if you don't practice thinking on your feet, when you actually have to perform for other people, you won't really understand uh, how to uh, properly be able to, to think on the spot and whatnot. So it's not really, oh, we're going to do this and then repeat it later, practice a skit, but it's more of let's practice the thought processes behind what it means to do improv, and we do that uh, again every week and to, to sort of build up the foundation of how to do improv comedy so you can perform it later. So would you say that trying improv, if someone is listening and wants to try it out, would you say it's something that is difficult for people to try or or jump into, or is it... Simple. It, it might look from the outside like, wow, these people are really quick on their feet. How, how would I be able to ever do this? But if you think about it, every normal conversation is in its own way an improv type things. So you go into a conversation not knowing what you're going to say. So you have to think on your feet there. And it's a lot of the ways similar to a conversation where uh, you're able to, based on what other people are doing in the scene, just go off of it and make jokes. So it is very accessible to people. Of course, it does have a bit of a learning curve if you want to get good at it, but the barrier for entry is quite low, so it's quite the accessible type thing. Yeah, and as far as I know, there's no dues for the club, so it's, it's no, free to it's, join. It's a free club. Uh, you can come whenever you want. If you just show up, we'll happily bring you in and then show you the ropes and introduce you to everyone. And that's definitely something that we pride ourselves on is the uh, welcoming environment. So, Jack, what are some of the benefits that you've seen in, like, your own life since you started improv? Do you think some of those benefits could translate to someone else as well? Yeah, so uh, it might sound weird, but in my personal life, it, it's been a big confidence thing to be able to get up in front of other people. And before I joined improv, it was very difficult to, to do that thing. I mean, a lot of people struggle with public speaking and whatnot, but being able to just get up in front of people and not necessarily make a fool of yourself, but 
risk having people laugh at you and, and doing something dumb and being able to not only do that, but come back and do that over and over. It sort of builds up that confidence. So I think that's certainly helped me. And from what I've seen in other people who've joined the club over the time, I've certainly seen that help other people as well in terms of they come in not necessarily like a, a shy, completely shy person, but they, they come in with certainly some reservations. And then by the time a couple months or a year goes by, you can see them definitely grow in terms of that confidence and being able to, to put themselves out in front of other people. So if someone is listening to this and thinking about like joining the club, where do you guys meet and how often? So we meet uh, twice a week. We meet on Tuesdays and Wednesdays here on NC State campus in Daniels 214 from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, it is completely free. You can come in and stop by. Uh, we will introduce you to everything and we're definitely very welcoming to new people. We get new people all the time and they seem to enjoy it. So if if anyone is really interested, feel free to stop by again, Daniels 214 from 6 to 8 on both Tuesdays and Wednesdays every week. And do you have to stay the whole time? Or? You don't have to stay the whole time. You can. It's preferred that you show up on time at 6. You can come in a little bit late. And if you need to leave early, you can leave 20 minutes, 30 minutes early or even earlier than that. So um, again, it's not really a, a very strict uh, schedule that we have in our practices. So it's more of a uh, we sort of just do game after game, so you can leave whenever you'd like. Okay, and uh, do you guys have any events coming up for on campus? Uh, we do. So aside from our practices, later in this month on October 25th, we have a show. So that is open to public. It's a kid-friendly show. It's going to be a Halloween show. And that's sort of to, because we've been practicing, we're going to get a, like eight of us together, and they're going to perform in an actual show to uh, display sort of what improv is. And anyone can come in and just enjoy it. Uh, be in the audience, get a good laugh. Uh, and just like our practices, it's completely free. You just need to come in and show up. We have it in uh, uh, October 25th. If you are interested in coming to it, we have Instagram at NCSUCIA. And if you follow mm -hmm. that, we'll have posts about where it will be in the exact time. So, Okay, well, um, that is a pretty, pretty good rundown of what the Comedic Improvisational Alliance is all about here on campus. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that you think people should know about your organization? Hmm. Um, putting yourself out there, I'd say, is just a, a great way to um, sort of expand your horizons. And I think I'm really glad that CIA is a, an opportunity for us NCSU students to be able to do that. So I encourage everyone else to, to step out of their comfort zone and try the same thing. That was Jack Van Walsen, the d director of the CIA here on campus, Comedic Improvisational Alliance. Check them out if you have a chance. Jack, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for the question. That just about does it, folks. Hope you had a wonderful evening. And stay safe and smiling. As always, we're on the Triangle, and I'm Aaron Kling. Thank you to our live audience who's tuned in to hear our sets. It means a lot to us all here, and we're always happy to hear from you as well. That's right. If you have any burning questions or powerful opinions, hit us up at publicaffairs at wknc.org. We are also accepting applicants if you'd like to become part of the Eye on the Triangle team. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. Our intro music for today's show was Save Sacks by Texas Radio Fish. Copyright 2019, license to Creative Commons, Attribution, Not Commercial, to License. Stay tuned for your usual program of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all again next time. Take care now.